continuing here this morning through Isaiah, and we are currently in Isaiah 42. Remember, Isaiah is divided up into the first 35 chapters that are where Isaiah is prophesizing to the people of Israel and to the whole world. And then in 36 through 39, we have historical books concentrating on Hezekiah. And then beginning in verse chapter 40, we are in Isaiah's prophecies of the future. Remember, he's prophesying to the uh, captives that are in Babylon. And they've kind of wondered if God is, even cares about them. And if he does, if he's even able to bring them home. And so it's what we have gone through in the first couple of chapters in Isaiah 40 is God persuade, God's prophecies that are meant to persuade these people that God is almighty. He is the only true God. <clears throat> he, is cap- he is capable of bringing them back from captivity out of Babylon who is a bunch of idol worshipers and their gods are totally impotent and that he wants to bring them back. He is both able and willing. And we will be looking further into that over the next few weeks. He is able and he's willing. He loves his people and he has not forgotten about them. Last week we covered, uh, or the last time we were together, we we uh, were in Isaiah 42 and we looked at the first nine verses Uh, Today we'll pick up on verse 10. But to get the context of verse 10, to make it sound like it's supposed to, we're going to read beginning at the beginning of chapter 42. And we will start over here with Darlene. I'll have you read the first nine verses. And then Elaine, if you will pick up there and go through verse 13. 10 through 13 for you, Elaine. Uh, This is titled, The Servant of the Lord. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. The smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the, law, the Lord, who, who created heaven, the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to, to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before, them, before they spring forth, I declare love. 
Okay, he's going to bring new things to pass, and um, the former, th and uh, new things he'll declare. All right. So, in light of all of this, let's read verses ten through thirteen. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and the inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. The inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Okay. <clears throat> now, the verses from... One to nine are they um, show us in the first four verses Isaiah prophesied just gives us information about the servant the servant the servant that will have dominion if you look at the end of verse nine the successful servant the true servant of the Lord so he gives us information about that servant and in verse five God states his absolute sovereignty. Verse 6, he tells of his servant being given as a covenant to his people. And in verse 7 through 9, he tells us of various things about the servant's mission of salvation. <clears throat> All of this being new things, because the former things have come to pass, and the new things <clears throat> he is declaring. All right. <clears throat> All right. Before we get moving, uh, any Questions or comments about those first nine verses? Alright, verse 10 starts out saying, Sing to the Lord a new song. In the history of redemption, God's people sing. Singing is very important. And uh, I don't know about you, but I love to sing. And although you may not like the fact that I sing, I like to sing in worship. That may be my favorite part of worship. And I know that I am not alone in just loving to sing about God's glorious redemption. So in the history of redemption, we see that God does. God's people do love to sing. Let's look up some verses here. Go down the aisle here. And uh, Kim, uh, Psalm 98, verse 1, as shown in the notes. Joshua, Exodus 15, just do the first five verses on that. The land of Revelation 5, 9 through 14. And um, 11, 17, and 18. Delaney, did I get that right, Delaney? Okay. And then, uh, Adam, uh, if you would uh, do Revelation 15, 3 and 4. All right, now, these are places that I've picked out to show God's people. All right, 98, verse 1. Sing unto the Lord a new song, for He hath done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have gotten Him the victory. Okay, we see that somewhere the Lord has people have seen God be victorious. So we have the same language. Therefore, 
in light of what God has done, let us sing a new song to the Lord. All right, Exodus 15, first five verses. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath cried, er, cried gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God. <clears throat> I will prepare him a habitation. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. All right, so what had just happened before the uh, children of Israel burst out into this song? What had just happened in the previous chapter? Okay. The children, huh? Yeah. The children of Israel passed through the sea. God divided the sea. The children of Israel passed through on dry land, and then the when the Egyptians tried to cross, the Egyptian army, the entire army, was wiped out. And at that time, they were seeing the Egyptian army on the seashore dead. And so they bring, break out into a song based on what the Lord has just done. All right, now we'll move over to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy of you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. <clears throat> okay, we see here that the recent, fairly recent advancement in redemption is the fact that Jesus was slain and He redeemed to us, He redeemed us to God by His blood. And in verse 13 we see that uh, He is enthroned. So we see that they're singing about Jesus being crucified and raised and enthroned. In other words, this crucifixion and His redemption are the recent redemptive acts that they are singing about. Okay, and uh, what, 11, 17 through 18. Then 
nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them that destroy the earth. All right, again we see uh, God's coming and his sovereignty to administer justice. And they are singing about that. All right, 15, 3 through 4, be our last one. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All right, God's great and marvelous works have been manifested in judging the nations. And so they are singing a new song again. Uh, This one isn't so new because it says they sang the song of Moses. But the previous one, it says they sang a new song. So we see all through the Scriptures that God, that the children of Israel, that God's people, God's covenant people, sing because of God's mighty redemptive acts and His advances in the history of redemption and in revealing new things. So it's what I'm saying this morning is that when we... Okay, um, to your notes here, to that first verse where it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. This word sing in the Hebrew is in the imperative mood. The imperative mood means it's a command. He is commanding His people to sing. And also this verb sing at the beginning of verse 10 is in the plural in the Hebrew. Our English translations don't pick those things up. But it's in the imperative, it's a command, and it's to more than one person. In other words, it's to the congregation. It's to assembled people. They are commanded to sing to the Lord a new song. The congregation is commanded to do that. Alright, finally, to your notes. That's what I'm saying is this passage is scriptural evidence against Anybody want to take a guess on exclusive psalmody? Yes. Here we have the Lord revealing new things to to the people of Israel, and then He commands them to sing a new song in accordance with this advancement and God's revelation to His people. God has revealed to them something new. He has given them a progression in redemptive revelation. They are to respond by singing a new song to Him. Your blank here is new songs are to be sung after God speaks of blessings to come and after His wonderful works are accomplished. As we have just read here. So it's what I maintain is that this teaches against that. 
that it's fine in the church to sing when I survey the wondrous cross in light of the fact that Jesus has made the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's fine in the church to sing Jesus Christ has risen today in response to the fact that in the history of redemption, Jesus Christ has now ascended into heaven. He has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and that He is reigning as we have read. In fact, in Romans 8, we see that all of creation is going to sing to Him. They do it now in anticipation of the consummation of the kingdom. And in Scripture, we see that all of creation is going to sing to Him at the actual consummation of the kingdom. The Psalms are no longer adequate as far as revelation goes. They are good. They're great. Singing Psalms is great. But they're no longer adequate. The fact that this is in the imperative and it's in the plural, sing to the Lord a new song, I'm making the case that this is rock solid scriptural evidence that we're to sing in light of the full revelation of God. Okay. But it also lays on us a heavy burden of discernment for the words that you sing. Right. That's right. We, we should throw out anything that's not theologically sound. So I guess the one more thing on that, um, that is the argument against explicit solemnity, I guess, like kind of, uh, what Mike was saying. Some might say, well, you can sing a new song, but it has to be inspired songs still. Only sing scripture. Um, what do you think of that? I don't say that myself, but... Yeah. I'd say, where's the scriptural evidence for that? Um, Joshua? So, assuming that what you say is correct, where do we find in scripture the instruction for how we are to compose psalms or uh, hymns? According to scripture. According to God's revelation. If it's not in accordance with God's revelation, it's a bad song and throw it out. I'm an exclusive what you might call an exclusive scripturist. If it's not according to scripture, throw it out. For worship anyway. Yeah, sometimes songs get words that you raise your eyebrows at, they throw them in there to make a rhyme or something. Yeah. You know. But yeah, I, I, I some songs when I said this to you. Yeah, some songs make me cringe, even the ones in our book. <clears throat> Would say it's based, it would be based on inspired scripture, not necessarily verbatim. Right. Inspired scripture. Well, that's well said. One of the that comes to mind is, is a hymn that says, On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise. Probably shouldn't sing that. It says he's coming back in the clouds. <laughs> in, uh, yeah, in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, Sing songs and hymns and scriptural songs. Um, that I think is in the context of worship. And the reason for that is to edify each other. When we sing, we're actually not only singing the Lord to the Lord, we're instructing each other according to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, I think it is. And you certainly don't want to... And, it, and then it says, speak the truth in love. 
So we are required when we sing to sing truth. Because we're not only giving God's words back to Him in response, but we're instructing each other. And so, yeah, we need to be very careful. Even though I don't believe in exclusive psalmist, I believe we need to be very careful. Yeah. Yeah, most churches are. I mean, I was in choir for years, and uh, they really took out after anything that came across. I mean, they were reformed, you know, very reformed. Anything that came across that they said, these are the words, no, you've got to change that. We can sing the song, but you're going to have to change this. Yeah. Yeah. So, psalms are still still great. They're inspired. Uh, even though when we sing them, they are very loosely paraphrased. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, psalms and scriptural psalms. Psalms that are in accordance with God's truth. You don't want to sing a lie or something that you can't back up. There, there's sometimes when we sing a song, a certain phrase, I will just kind of refrain from singing until we get past that phrase. Yeah, Charles? Uh, folks will notice sometimes in the Trinity Hymnal, there are some hymns, some of them fairly traditional hymns, that there are footnotes at the bottom of the hymn indicating that the wording has been changed from the original version of that hymn to reflect more of a proper theological understanding. Yeah. Uh, I've mentioned this one before. Uh, and he opened the life gate that all may go in. That's been changed to that we may go in. So you, you, a lot of these revivalistic tunes from the mid-1800s and onward reflect an Arminian perspective. That um, Fortunately, the, the Trinity Hymn Revision Committee had the foresight to change some of that wording. Yeah. Now, I think I just want to comment on that, that uh, we're on this discussion that when we sing together in church, we're either one or two things, we're either preaching or we're praying. It's either if we're thinking of him directly addressed to God, it's a prayer, right? Yeah, right. And if it's, if it's just about God, we're preaching that to each other. So we're singing songs and spiritual songs to one another. So we should be edifying each other through mm-hmm. preaching in that way, and um, that should be in accordance with truth. So singing songs is important, and singing the right songs is important too. And uh, you know, uh, for a long time I would just sing. Um, I guess, and I imagine a lot of y'all were that way too. I, I was, I didn't care too much about theology or anything, and hey, I would just sing, just to sing. <laughs> we shouldn't do that. All right, anything else on that? So should we as Christians never sing a non-spiritual, scripturally correct song if we know that's what it is? Should we just not sing it? I would say if you know... if it, Well, you know, I, what I'm talking about this morning is in a worship setting. Okay. And nothing but a worship setting. You use your discretion when you're not in worship. Of course, a song that's has uh, evil things in it, rap music. You may not want to join in and sing with rappers, but um, it doesn't, you know, just use your discretion is what I'd say. My discretion may not be real good, 
but maybe yours is better. I think about songs that I sang to my children. Hickory Dickory Dock. I'm almost ran up the clock. <laughs> it has nothing to do with yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's fine. Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. Well, so many of the children's nursery rhymes are set to music, and maybe we shouldn't be singing them to our kids. Maybe we should just be singing, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. That's what they need to hear. I think it was Daniel Webster that came out with a song book and a no, it was an educational book, not Daniel Webster, Noah Webster, excuse me. <laughs> and all of the uh, all of the stories, everything was based on scripture. Like, here's a pencil. We use that to write down scriptural stuff to memorize. I mean, you know, that's where you that's one extreme. I'm not saying we should go there. But uh, I don't know. My opinion is that it doesn't all the time have to be based on something on Scripture. Well, but it should be decent stuff, you know. There was a, I, I don't remember the name of the author. I've got the book at home. It's a, a scripturally based renovation of Mother's. Yeah. It's quite a, an interesting Okay, that's good. So, based on what God has done for us, like after 40, chapter 42, 1 through 9, the people should, without having to be commanded, break out in joyous song to God. I mean, that's the way our worship should be. We shouldn't be in there uh, like I sometimes do. Uh, we should be joyful. We should be joyful when we sing. Um, the church is a place to be joyful because we sing about what God has done for us. The fact that this is God's world, He has called us into this kingdom, into His kingdom, and He has promised wonderful things for us. I want to read real, a real short quote from Raymond Ortland here. It says, a prophet calls the whole world to join him in worshiping God for Jesus Christ. The greatest work of grace is when unbelief falls away and our hearts melt into gladness in God. He wants everyone to be released into true worship. That is why Christian churches have public, not private, worship services. We welcome the whole world but we aren't the ones extending the invitation. God is. He has opened the door to idolaters from all cultures so that they can experience something new, worthy of praise in a new song. So, hopefully through, I guess that's what he's saying, is through them seeing our joyful singing unto the Lord, they may start inquiring about our worship. All right, anything else on the first verse? <laughs> At this rate, we'll finish hopefully before Jesus comes again. Okay. Um, let's see. 
Uh, we'll finish these three verses, and then we'll start on verse 14 next week. Um, these also, this, uh, these verses teach, this is in your notes, without any doubt that the Lord will prevail. His purpose of saving the world will be accomplished. And I get that basically from verse 13. He shall go forth like a mighty man and stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. If you're against God, you're not going to win. You have no future. It's a fight you will never win. And the fact that Keter and Selah, that's the way those are pronounced according to my self-pronunciation Bible here, Keter and Selah, are included. This shows how wide the great is the grace of God. Uh, I, um, not Ashley. Um, Avonlea. Audrey. Uh, Audrey. Audrey. I knew it was a, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, Audrey. I'm sorry. I, I was over too. But anyway, if you look up for Psalm 120, verses 5 through 7, and uh, let's stay over here on this side. We'll just look up about Keter here. How terrible Keter was, and yet they are going to be brought into the kingdom, it looks like. Alright, Psalm 120, verses 5 through 7. Keter was a very wicked place. The psalmist could not wait to get out of there to get to Jerusalem. And yet, these people are going to be brought into the kingdom. Let even them shout for joy from the top of the mountains. Okay, I'm going to bring it to a halt there. Any other comments on... Anything in Isaiah 42? (coughs) It shouldn't take but just a few minutes to finish up Isaiah 42. And next week we'll be concentrating on Isaiah 43. (coughs) All right, if there's no other questions or comments, Bud, I'll ask you to close us up in prayer this morning.